0: Thank you, uh, thank you, Eugene. And um, we'll continue to hear from other uh, of our you know, three other new members as we um, yeah, proceed and, and move forward in, in the weeks to come. Okay. So I think it was like a couple of weeks ago. I was reading a bedtime story to Elijah. He's our um, he's our middle child, and uh, it's a book that he likes to to read. I mean, he doesn't read it, but he likes to look at it. He asks us to read it a lot. Um, it it's called I love my abuela. I love my abuela. It's a uh, Dora the Explorer book and basically she lists out all these reasons why she loves her grandmother. And so I was reading this uh Elijah's sitting on the bed next to me I'm flipping through the pages and Dora's talking about her grandma. She says I love my abuela because she makes me hot chocolate and there's a picture of her like stirring the chocolate and Dora's like so happy with her bowl haircut. i oh, so excited. I love my abuela because she uh, climbs mountains and it shows them like skipping up a mountain and, you know, grandma's uh, just young and springy and all that stuff. And Elijah loves it. Next page we get to, I love my abuela because she loves dancing. And it shows abuela doing the salsa, right? It says, uh, uh, abuela loves doing the salsa. And as we're reading that page, Elijah says, I don't like this page. And he tried to turn it. And I said, Elijah, no, we can't turn the page. This is part of the story he says, no, I don't like this page. I don't like this abuela. And so he tried to turn the page. So he turned the page and I continued reading, continued reading, got to the end of the book. And I closed the book and right before about the pray, I said, Elijah, look at daddy, look at daddy. Okay? Uh, you can't just turn the page in a book that you don't like. Right? I said, even though the part about abuela liking dancing doesn't change the fact of the story and what happened in the beginning, in the middle and the end. It was important, Elijah. you understand? Dora included that so that grandma wouldn't, abuela wouldn't just be this one-dimensional cardboard character, but there's character development. It's a crucial component of understanding the ins and outs, her emotions, her understanding of her cultural heritage and the dances that come along with being whatever ethnic background uh, abuela is. This is important, Elijah. You have to understand that you can't just turn the page, okay? And he said, okay. I understand. So what does Dora and her abuela have to do with the Bible and with us this morning? Well, I'll tell you what. A lot of times we read this book, the Bible. You know, this book is it's one story, a true story, broken up, broken up into two parts, the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. Sixty-six littler books, but all of them are telling the same story. And even though... We may skip the pages of some of them. The story remains the same. It's a story about Jesus, and that's not going to change. But what happens when we skip out on some of the pages that we don't like is that we end up with a very one-dimensional picture of Jesus, a cardboard flannel board cutout, if you will, lacking the depth and the development and the understanding that one has if, if they were to have read the entire Old Testament through the lenses of seeing that this is all about Jesus. The story is the same, but I would venture to say that if you read the New Testament, and again, the story of Jesus would be the same without the Old Testament, but if you read only the New Testament and understanding Christianity and the story of Jesus, it's almost like repeatedly kissing your bride through a veil. It works, but it could be so much better. So for 46 weeks, and we could have spent a whole lot more time But for 46 weeks, we've gone through the Old Testament to develop the character of the God-man Jesus whose birth and coming to the world we will celebrate next Sunday and then again on the 25th. We've been developing all of these things in order to see that Jesus wasn't just a man who one day showed up born in Bethlehem, but he was predicted and prophesied from the very first person, first people ever put on this planet. Genesis 3.15 says, one day one is coming, the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. This is the great story, the grand story, that for 46 weeks we've been talking about. And today we've come to the very end of the Old Testament, when the very last prophet to ever speak And after Malachi is done, in my Bible, there's two pages, right? Two pages of emptiness. It says New Testament, and then Matthew starts. These two pages represent 400 years of silence. Or after God prophesies through Malachi, he doesn't speak again for four centuries until we get to the New Testament. So Malachi was written, again, the last prophet. It was after Ezra, after Esther. You remember in Ezra, uh, Ezra bookends the events of Esther, right? So Ezra, Zerubbabel leads a return, restoration of the temple, then Esther, and then the second return. And then in 445 BC, there was a final return of the exiles under a man named Nehemiah, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, 445 BC. And then after that, Malachi comes prophesying and preaching on the scene. And he's the very last one to speak. And so the words that he has to speak are deeply, highly significant and important for us to hear before God turns out the light and exits stage right for 400 years. Okay, So what is he saying? The book of Malachi, basically, it's a lover's quarrel. Have you ever experienced that? Where a husband and wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend are arguing about something. It's a lover's quarrel between the faithful lover God and his unfaithful lover, the beloved the people of God, the Jewish people, the people of Judah, people of Israel, what have you. Uh, This is a lover's quarrel. And the way that God speaks to their hardened hearts is through a series of questions and answers. He will bring up a question or he will bring up an accusation and they will ask God a question like, why? What do you mean? What are you talking about? And so as we look into this, we're going to we're going to look into three very important questions. We're going to just kind of summarize it and take a big picture view. Look at just three questions. okay? Three questions that talk about God's care for his people and God's complaint against his people. And then the last thing we're going to look at is God's call to his people. Okay? His care, his complaint, and then we're going to look at his call to his people. The first thing we're going to see, the first question that God asks is, do you know I love you? Chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? You've got a problem here. If you're in a love relationship with someone and one of the party says, I love you. And the other person responds saying, you do? How? Prove it. Show me. How do you love me? You've got a problem. They need some serious marriage counseling at this point. So God says to the objects of his affection, I have loved you. And they're like, how? How have you loved us? And so fundamentally, we've got an issue here. The question that God asks, and this is important to all of our, these questions are important to all who are going on our retreat next week. It's a heart check. These questions are important to all of us as we finish out a new year, as we, as we think about how to prepare for a new year. This is a heart check to us. The question that God asks is, do you know that I love you? Because at the fundamental level, failure here leads to failure everywhere. Because our issue, if we're having a hard time getting motivated to come to church to worship God, if we have a hard time obeying the commands of God, if we have a hard time praying to God, if we don't have any desire to read the Word of God, if there's no passion and compassion in our hearts to reach out to people who don't know the Lord God, fundamentally the issue is not because we don't love God enough. That's not the first step. Maybe that's included, and definitely that's included, but the deeper issue is that we don't know how much God loves us. If we fail here, we fail everywhere. And the fundamental issue with our lack of understanding, appropriating, living out the Christian life is not because we don't love well. It's because we're not understanding how loved we are by God. So sometimes you hear me pray, Jesus, we love you because you've loved us first. You've got to get that order right. 1 John 4.10, the word of God says, this is love. It's not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You You can't just say, I love. You have to love an object. You have to love something. And unless you see something worthy of love, you're not going to be able to love. You don't just walk around saying, I'm a loving person. You have to love an object. Love always has an object. And the only way that we can love God is if we understand the beauty and the essence and the worth of that object. God asks that fundamental question. He says, do you know that I love you? Do you know this deep in your heart? You see, the Israelites had forgotten about that because there was a difficult situation. They were in exile. And oftentimes, hardship causes us to forget how much God loves us, blinds us from seeing how loved we are. I, a few weeks back, I likened the exile to being put in timeout for them to think about so that they can come back and repent. When I put my kids in timeout. And I come back to them, the first thing I always say to them is, I love you, I forgive you. And sometimes they say, I love you back. Usually they say, I love you back. But sometimes they say, no, I don't want you right now. Because the hardship of exile has caused them to doubt and to question in that moment, my love for them. And granted, in time they come back to, they understand because I hold them, I love them, I pray for them, I feed them, and all these things. They understand that I love them. But in that moment, isn't it true that hardship has a way of blinding us to the reality that God loves us? If you have a hard time knowing that God loves you, is it because you have experienced hardship in your life or there's a situation of hardship? That's one of the reasons why the Israelites, the Jews, had a hard time believing that God loved them. But the other reason was not a hardness of their situation, but it was a hardness of their hearts. And a lot of times, We forget that God loves us because our hearts have become hardened to his love for us. And so they say, how have you loved us? As if for all the years God had not shown them how much he had loved them. But they ask, how have you loved us? This is what God says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. I know some of you are saying, how can God hate someone? This is comparative language here, comparative language that if I have loved Jacob, then it is as if I have hated Esau. That's how much I love Jacob. That's what God is saying. Jacob and Esau, the brothers, if you had to choose one of them, everyone would have chosen Esau. He was the man's man. He was the hunter. He was, the, he was strong. He was masculine. He was hairy. Jacob lived amongst the tents. He was mama's boy. Mama loved him. He liked to cook food, right? He would go on Top Chef where the other cat would go on like Bear Grill show, Esau. So two different guys. And if the world had to choose one, they'd always choose Esau. But God says, look, I have loved Jacob. Completely, completely counterintuitive. It's like it's like the homecoming queen, instead of choosing to square dance with the football team captain, the quarterback of the football team, she chooses the average Joe. Right? That's kind of what's happening here. And they say, even in the midst of all that, because you remember Jacob, right? Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. And he would have 12 sons, and these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and from there they would become the people of Israel. Esau, his descendants would become the Edomites, and they were the ones who were opposed by God. And God is saying, Listen, I chose Jacob, the one that nobody wanted. Not Esau. I chose Jacob. And to be in, at one point they were in awe and in wonder of God's love for them. But at this point, centuries later, they say, how have you loved us? Wasn't there a time in our lives where we knew so deeply in our hearts that God loved us? It was a kind of love that made you cry. The kind of love that at one point made you say, I'm not going to go back to my sins anymore. had not you know that love before? It's the kind of love that made you make these bold promises for God that I want to do this for you. I want to live for you. I'm not, I'm going to forgive my parents. I'm not going to let them get to me. I'm going to forgive my kids. I'm going to pray for them every day. It, It wasn't there a time when we knew the love of God so deeply that it made us caused us to make these kinds of promises to God that moved us to tears. We sang about the love of God. It stirred something within our heart. Wasn't there a time where God's love moved us? It did for the Israelites. It did for the Jews, but not anymore. God says, I've loved you. And they say, how? Have you really loved us? Prove it. Show us. Tell us how. It wasn't always like that. For me, I remember the times. I remember times when I would sit at, at retreats or rallies when I was in high school and we would sing songs like I knew all of the sinful things that I had done but to know that God loved me to know that God forgave me even though I had all those skeletons in my closet and then we would come into a retreat setting and we would sing why have you chosen me out of millions your child to be you know all the wrong that I have done, but how could you pardon me, forgive my iniquity to save me, give Jesus your son, and in response, say, but Lord, help me be what you want me to be. Your word, I will strive to obey this life I now live. This life I now give for you I will live and walk by your side all the way. I remember singing those songs with tears coming down my eyes that I am amazed to know that a God so great could love me so is willing and wanting to bless. His love is so wonderful, his mercy so bountiful, I can't understand it, I confess. The Lord help me to be what you want me to be. Wasn't there a time in your life when when God said, I've loved you, you said, I know, amazing love, I know it's true. But in time, our hearts get hardened. You sing, amazing love, I know it's true. I hope it's true. I think it's true. It used to be true, maybe, but is it still really true? Amazing love, I know it's true. Wasn't there a time when you knew God's love was so real in your life. He asked, do you know that I love you? Because you see, failure here leads to failure everywhere. A.W. Tozer said, unless we are fascinated by the love of God, we will always find ourselves spiritually in a rut, constantly trying, but always falling back. Feel like that? because we don 't understand deeply the love of God in our lives, I was sitting on i 've got a, um, a chair a massage chair in my office that uh, one of uh, somebody gave it 's wonderful wonderful chair and I, feel, I felt like you know I enjoy it but i 'm not fully maximizing all of the benefits of it and so I went on online and I, I found the model number human touch da da da, 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 da all this stuff and, and I typed in the model number and I watched this like four minute video on how to make the most of this massage chair and as I was watching it it just like blew me away all of the things that it could do and this is like pre programmed it says we have four 15 minute pre-programmed modules if you lay on this in just 15 minutes a day here all the things just list all the benefits lower stress you'll sleep better at night your kids will sleep better at night you'll look better all of these things happen I'm like dude in 15 minutes it says just 15 minutes a day I thought to myself, holy cow, 15 minutes or more could save you 15% on car insurance, 15 minutes a day, can do all these things. What if, what would it look like if I, for 15 minutes a day, gazed upon, meditated upon, allowed my heart to be fascinated again, irresistibly charmed is the word that Tozer uses, to be irresistibly charmed by the love of God. Fifteen minutes <laughs> while I sit on my massage chair thinking about the beauty of God. The first question he asks, Do you know that I love you? That's the first thing. The second question he asks, the second question he asks, this is his concern, he asks, is your heart, his complaint, is your heart, still in this boy that's a tough question isn't it is your heart still in this that's a hard question for any lover to ask of their beloved hey, is your heart still in this relationship why has he asked that because over the next uh, four chapters he's going to ask a series of of rapid fire questions and it's like their hearts have become so completely hardened they, they, they'll they'll ask questions back to God like, what do you mean? How have we hurt you? How have we slandered you? How have we talked bad about you? How have we robbed you? How have we wearied you with our prayers? How have we done these things? They're completely oblivious to the fact that they have dishonored God with their lives. And the question they ask is how? If God were to come to you, and say, hey, you know what, here's, you know, I love you and and my love for you will never change, but but one complaint. I'm not sure if your heart is still in this. How would we respond? If our God is true and all-knowing and honest, and he says your heart is not in this, then we'll respond in one of two ways. We'll say, okay, I repent. Or we'll say, how? What do you mean? What are you talking about? How has my heart become hardened? There's a bunch of different things that he talks about in Malachi, but two things in particular that I want to highlight. First is in the area of worship. He says in verse 6, chapter 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. In the Old Testament, you went to worship God. You had to bring a sacrifice. You bring an animal, the priest brings an animal, and they offer that to God. And God always says, you bring the best that you have to to, to offer to me. You bring the firstborn, you bring the healthy one, you bring the beautiful one, you bring the unblemished lamb as a sign that one day God would provide the true unblemished lamb. So you bring the very best that you have, and you offer that to God. He's saying, this is your act of worship. We're all bringing something, a sacrifice of something into the house of the Lord every time we worship. But the problem with the priests, the problem with the Old Testament believers is that they were bringing crippled animals, lame animals, blind animals. They say, hey, they burn just the same on the altars The good animals. We've got nothing better to do with them. Let's just offer them to God. How do you think God feels about that? We were just going to throw them away anyway. We couldn't sell them anyways. Let's give it to God. A lot of you may know the story of, uh, you know, in our youth ministry, one particular year we had a bunch of students from the same high school, Cypress Creek High School. A lot of them went there. Um, there are four guys particular, good friends, Chung Min Daniel Kwok, Carlton Kwan, uh, and there's another anonymous Chinese brother who was also one of their crew, ran together, hung together. Went to school together, studied together, played together, went to church together, played on the praise together all these things. They did all these things together. One particular day, they're hanging out at this unnamed anonymous Chinese brother's house. And they were hanging out somewhere and chit-chatting, shooting the breeze, having fun. And one of them said, hey, unnamed Chinese brother, you have anything to drink at your house? And so unnamed Chinese brother yelled to his mother, who was in a different room, and said, mom, is there anything to drink? And she yelled something back in Cantonese. Carlton, who speaks Cantonese, heard that and started laughing. Ha 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 And so our Korean brothers, Daniel and Jungmin, are like, What are you laughing at? What are you laughing at? What did she say? And Carlton, translating her mother's, uh, the unnamed Chinese brother's mother's words, said, She said, Give him the soft drinks, the sodas, they're expired, anyways. And so that made Carlton laugh, and it made, I'm sure it didn't make the Korean brothers feel very happy. As Carlton explained that to them, I don't think they said, oh, yeah, please, please, can you bring those expired dr- I love, I love one-month-old Coke. It's awesome. It's the best. Oh, my gosh, can you really? I, I wait for them to ferment like our kimchi. I love expired soda. Can you bring? They didn't say that. Maybe, maybe if this was you, you might actually feel insulted. Why do they even have those? They should have thrown them away. Instead of throwing them away, they were waiting for someone like me to give them to. But that's what the Old Testament worshipers were giving to God. Hey, These are good for nothing anyways. Give it to God. And I wonder what kind of offerings we're bringing to God in worship. Are we bringing to God the very best that we have to offer? A worship that is thoughtfully given to Him. A worship that is prepared. Or do we just give God whatever we have left? Just whatever I've got. I'll just come. I'm not really that excited to come, but I'll just give it to Him anyways. I think, think, well, if you keep on reading, God says it's better that you don't offer those sacrifices. I don't need that. I don't need that. It's like I had, I had some friends who, uh, before the days of credit cards, they went to eat at a restaurant paying cash, and they looked at the money they had. We got 30 bucks. We can only spend 30 bucks. And they got their bill. They forgot to include the tax and the tip. And so they realized, holy smokes, we don't have enough money for a tip. And so one of the guys says, hold up. In my car, I got a jar filled with pennies. So he ran to the car, brought out those pennies and emptied it out on the table. And they said, let's get out of here. And they were going to their car and the server came running out and he said, wait, 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 you guys forgot something. You guys forgot something. And he threw the pennies back at them and he said, you know what, you need these more than I do. He's saying, I don't want this. I don't need this. Are you kidding me? I don't need this. And I think that's, the attitude that God is giving in Malachi to these people who gave these leftover, half-hearted expressions of worship—he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't need. Who do you think I am? Do you think I am poor? Do you think I'm some needy God who needs your approval and needs your singing? To I'm not. I am God alone. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. The reason I tell you to worship me with all that you have is because that's what will satisfy you because that's the most loving thing I can give to you is to tell you to worship me with everything within. And we bring a half-hearted sacrifice of blind worship sometimes. And God says, is your heart in this? Is your heart in your worship? Is your heart in your worship as you come each week? Or do we come because that's what we're supposed to do? we come because that's what people expect us to do? we come because that's what someone told us to do? If I don't come, it's going to be bad. And we are always bringing a sacrifice. And in chapter 2, verse 8, the reason why God says this is so bad is because your half-hearted worship, he's saying to them, is affecting the worship life of the rest of the people. Can I tell you something? The reason why we pray for each other when we worship sometimes, is because we are connected in worship. Did you know that when I half-heartedly worship, that affects you guys? You know that? That's what he says. And when you half-heartedly worship, that affects the people around you too. And that's why God is saying, "This this is so dangerous. Because you're affecting the worship life of all these people around you. He's saying specifically to leaders, but, you know, for, for all of us. It says says, chapter 2, verse 8, But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Listen, is your worship causing people to worship God better, or is your worship causing people to stumble because of how you worship him? This is not just, man, as much as, you, as much as we say you need to personally give your life to Christ, our relationship with God, it is personal, but it's not private. It is always corporate. It's always communal. Your worship, your life always affects other people. It always, always does. If you don't think so, think about the people who have negatively influenced your life. On the flip side, when you worship and you give the best worship that you have to God, it makes other people want to worship him more too. It cause people to stumble or cause them to love God more. He asks, Is your heart in this? Is your heart in this? The other area that he talks about here, the other area that he talks about then is not just in worship, but he, he talks about it in the area of do you trust me? Trusting God. This is what he says, and it particularly says, Do you trust me in the area of finances? Uh, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Will a man rob God? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, you can't rob God, but he says, Yet you rob me. But just how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Then he says in verse 10, bring the whole tithe, right? that's a tenth of what you earn, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, he says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. If this is what God says. He says, listen, do you trust me? Hey, look here, look here. He says, do you trust me? Because the truest place where your allegiance is tested is when God comes up against the almighty dollar. He says, do you trust me in the area of your finances? Do you trust me enough that you can do what saints throughout time have been doing and give me the first 10% as a sign that everything belongs to me. heres I think we get it wrong sometimes. We think, you know what, uh, I've got 100% of, of my paycheck, 10% is God's. He's saying, no, 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 that's not the case. 100% of your paycheck, 100% of that is God's. The 10% is a symbol and not a substitute. It is a symbol that all of it is God's, not a substitute for the rest of it belonging to him. In the same way that you come into church on Sunday and worshiping is a symbol of the rest of your life being an act of worship, not a substitute for the rest of your life being an act of worship. God is saying everything, everything you have is mine. But as a sign that it's mine, just give me 10%. And let me ask you, he says, do you trust that I can make $9 go infinitely further than you can make $10 go? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because there's no place where our faith and trust in God is put to the test more than when it comes to the area of finances. God says, can you believe this? Can you trust this? And the people of God were shortchanging him. Literally, it's saying, saying, can a man mug God? It's comical. The answer, we're supposed to laugh and say, ha, of course not. And then God pulls out the rug and says, but you are. You're mugging me. Dude, you're mugging me. Guys, come on. How are we mugging you? By not giving your tithe. By not trusting with this one aspect of your life. And I know some of y'all are saying, I don't tithe, and things are going well. That's great. But you believe that things can go even better? Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know if I could do this. And so here's what God says. He says, listen, this is the last time I'm going to talk for 400 years, which for God is not a lot, but for us it's a long time. This is the last time i am talking, So I'm going to throw it out there. Never in the rest of the Bible have I said this. In fact, later I will say, don't do this. But listen, I'm going to tell you just one time, just one time, because I'm about to, I'm about to go silent. Listen. Test me in this. Test me. Do you trust me? Listen, if you do this, if you do this, I promise you, Check. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust your storehouses wide open. I'm going to do it. But do you trust me in this? Here's what he's saying. He's saying this in the context of finance, but in every area of life. He says, if you trust me, you're not losing, you're gaining. You're not losing, you're winning. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this with all of your heart? Do you really trust in this area? Do you trust God about this? He's saying, I would blow you away. Not only would you be blessed, but he says, I will protect, I will prevent pests from devouring, I'll protect your life. Do you trust me though? And this is really, I mean, this is, Again, you're gonna you're gonna hear this, and either you're gonna be moved or not be moved. And, and if you're moved, you're gonna say you're gonna either do this or not. I'm telling you, man, this is God. He's saying this. Saying, whenever you obey me, it's not to your it's not to your loss. It is always to your blessing, so that I might be glorified through your actions. Do you trust me in this? Is your heart still committed to me? It's the second thing yes and then the last thing the last thing we see last thing we see if our heart is not in it he says will you come back to me chapter 4 uh, verses 1 and 2 surely the day is coming the day of his return he's talking about it will burn like a furnace all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. He's saying, listen, there's one day coming where Jesus is going to make all things right. It's going to be a day of reckoning. And for those who continued to persistently walk away from God, there'll be a fire that burns. But to those who come back to him, the sun will rise not to burn, but to heal with healing in its. Wings. The exact same event, two completely different consequences based on how we respond to God. You know, I think that what the prophets have been saying throughout, that God doesn't like when we live however we want to live. We do evil, we sin, and we say, well, God doesn't care. He's not going to do anything about it. A day is coming when I will do something about it. A day is coming when everything that is wrong, for that matter, is going to be made right. You know, it's like, I I, I saw this comic the other day and it's kind of this smug Christian guy who rests in the fact that Jesus loves him, but he goes off and he does whatever he wants to do. And he says, I love you, Jesus. In the next slide, Jesus says, I love you too. And you know what I said in my word? If you love me, you will obey my commands. And this guy says, yeah, I do my best, but I mess up like we all do. And the great thing is that you keep on forgiving me and keep on welcoming me back. And Jesus says, you know, at some point, I hope you realize that this is turning into an abusive relationship. Dang. Imagine you being in a relationship with a lover. Keeps on saying that they love you. And you're like, I love you, I love you, but you don't do what they say. And you keep on going back saying, you know what? It's all good because you'll always love me. At what point does that relationship become abusive? At what point do you realize that this person needs to get out of it? And Jesus is saying, listen, you keep on saying that. You keep on saying that. Understand that this is not the way the relationship ought to be. If your heart is not in it, he offers this invitation. He says, will you come back? Will you come back to me? Because if you do, if you do, then the sun will rise with healing in its wings. If you don't, if you don't, then judgment is going to come. And then at the end of the prophecy, verse six says, uh, verse five, see, I'll send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers. And here's the last thing, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The last word in the Old Testament is a curse. And for 400 years, there's no message. There's no hope. There's no truth. There's no prophet. There's no voice. Silence. Because Malachi was saying the same thing that all of these prophets were saying. It sounds like the prophets were all about doom and gloom. And in a sense, there was an urgency to their calling. There's an urgency to their message. But at the same time, all throughout, the message was, if you repent, though, God's love is drawing you back if you come back to Him. But as it is, the Old Testament ends with God's pronunciation of a curse over the people. Imagine that. And We walk out of here every Sunday at the end of service with a benediction, benediction word, a benediction. And you go out of here like that. Imagine if. The last word out of here was a malediction, a curse. Cursed are you. And then you go into 400 years of silence. God is saying, this is the condition of the world apart from my gracious intervention. And silence falls. And then some 400 years later, the silence would be broken by the cries of a child in a manger in Bethlehem because God wouldn't remain away from his people. Constantly offering hope, constantly pursuing, constantly going after them. My professor, Steve Brown, talks about this young couple. They're married and marriage had kind of fallen upon some hard times. And so the wife left, leaving the husband, young man, and two kids behind. And so he kept on trying to contact her, asking where she is. She would call now and then, would never say where she's at, say she's never coming back. He would say, but we love you. I love you. I miss you. I want you back. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Talk to the kid. I want to talk to the kids. That's it. But you know. So at what point does he say, okay, it's time to pack it up and, and forget it? When do we, When does he leave? When does he get the divorce? Take the kids, let's go. For him, that day would not come because he withdrew everything he had from savings and he paid a private detective to, to find his wife. So he found her on the other side of the country, th- staying in a third-rate motel, barely scraping by. And so he took, Borrowed some money from his friends, and he bought a plane ticket out to where she was, hailed a cab, and showed up on her doorstep. And he knocked on the door. She opened it, and to surprise, it was her husband. And he said, I love you. I want you back when you come home. And she fell apart in his arms. And she said, I'm going home with you. She went home, and a few weeks later, after things calmed down, he said, why Wouldn't you come home when I told you and I said we wanted you back? Why? Countless times I said, we want you home. We love you. I love you. Why didn't you come home? And she said, because when you said it, it was only words. But then you came. Ah, But then you came. This is what God did christmas day he came to show the world that he was serious malachi said how how do you love us how do you love? are you serious how do you love us we no longer need to doubt people of god for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him Whoever returns to him, whoever comes back to him, will not perish but have eternal life. How have you loved us? But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He paid it all upon a cross. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we need Christmas. This is why we can come back to him, because he came. And he offers out that hope for you and for me. Let's pray. Guys, do you know that God loves you and that he has loved you with an everlasting love? Have you lost a wonder of his love maybe uh, God's call for you and for me is to sit at the foot of the cross where once and for all it was made clear you and I would not give up our sons I would not give my only son to a people undeserving but he did so that for all history, all eternity, nails remaining even into heaven, scars remaining in His hands, for all eternity, we would never doubt the fact of His love for us. Even if everything in life were to be taken from us like it was for Job, the cross tells us that He loves us. Nothing would change that love. Is your heart, my friend, still in your relationship with God? Or have you allowed it to wander, to go astray? Do you give the best worship that you have to Him? Or do you just come in and give whatever you have? Do you trust Him in your obedience? Do you trust Him in your decisions? Do you trust Him in your finances? Do you trust His Word? Is your heart still in it? Or are you just going through the motions? It's not about the art. It is all about the heart. And if your heart has wandered, will you come back? Will you come back to him today? He holds out hope. He says, I came. I didn't wait for you. I didn't wait for you to call me. I didn't wait for you to come back to me. I didn't wait for any of that. I came running to you. I came running to you and I'm here. Will you come back to me? Let's take a minute to pray, to respond to the word of God. Let's come back home, guys. Let's come back home. Let's rest in his love. Let's embrace the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. He loves you. You're the only one in this life, only one in this world. It's love for you. It would be as fierce as it is now. All of Niagara Falls flooding down on you in love. Let's pray for a moment. I'll pray for us and we'll continue to respond in worship. in heaven remind us of the young son in Luke 15 who took everything that his father had and wasted it and ended up in a pigsty wishing and longing that he could come back home. When we run from you we don't do it to our pleasure and our joy we do it to our pain and to our detriment. So when we come back to you We don't come back to a God who's angry. We don't come back to a Father who's waiting to meet us. We come back because that completes our joy and it completes your joy. And when we come back home, there's rejoicing in heaven. May we, may our lives be the cause of celebration amongst the angels in heaven because we come back to you, O lover of our souls. Remind us how much you love us. Thank you so much. Help us to love you by knowing how much you love us first. In Jesus' name we pray.